Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, in 1973, Dr. Willie Morrow, who we will discuss a bit further in this episode, wrote in his book, 400 Years Without a Comb, he said, Quote, hair, in other words, is the basic natural symbol of the things people are or want to become. The social cultural significance of hairstyles should not be underestimated. Yes. And Dr. Morrow, who has been called, quote, the greatest barber the world has ever seen, end quote, was speaking specifically about black hair, which is the subject of today's episode. We are so pleased to have Dr. Tamika Ellington and Dr. Joseph Underwood join us today to discuss their upcoming exhibition, Textures, the History and Art of Black Hair, which will open in early September 2021 at the Kent State University Museum. The exhibition, which is the largest exhibition to date on black hair, features 250 objects and work from more than 50 artists. Wow. Yeah. So at Kent State, Dr. Ellington serves as an associate professor of design and also the interim assistant dean for the College of Arts. And her areas of study include African art and folklore, a focus that Dr. Underwood just happens to share as an assistant professor of art history. And he studies artists from the African continent and also the diaspora. Drs. Ellington and Underwood, we are so happy you are joining us today. Welcome. Drs. Ellington and Underwood, a very warm welcome to Dress. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Oh, we're excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, April. And we are just like so delighted that you have both agreed to chat with us about your exhibition, Textures, the History and Art of Black Hair. And Dr. Ellington, I'm hoping that I can ask you the first question because the subject of black hair has been the focus of your academic career for two decades now, which is amazing. And it was born out of personal experiences, which you detail in the introduction to the exhibition catalog. So I'm hoping that you might share with our listeners how your, as you say, hair traumas kind of led you to this amazing path of academic study. You know, being a heuristic researcher is really an interesting place to be, especially when you're studying culture. And so throughout my life as a Black female, especially, you know, being a Black female that is brown skinned with kinky hair, I'm always, and people like me have always been on the outside of what beauty is supposed to look like. And so, you know, going through things such as putting chemicals in my hair in order to try to assimilate into what society is saying beauty is. So like hair straighteners and other chemicals to alter the texture of our, like, you know, of Black people's hair. Like I've lost my hair uh, on two occasions. My hair has fallen out because of the the harsh chemicals. Um, I've been called um, ugly you know, because of the fact that I have kinky hair, hair, which some people call quote unquote nappy hair. I've even, you know, been faced with um, difficulties in, in my work. Um, 
when I was a young person, I went to work for an amusement park and this particular amusement park, you know, had a, a list of all of the um, hairstyles that were not allowed to be worn in the, in the um, amusement park. And all of those hairstyles were black hairstyles. And at that particular time, I was wearing one of those black hairstyles. So basically they were telling me that I had to assimilate in order to come to work. They said that all of their employees needed to look all American, you know, whatever that means. And so it was, it was difficult, you know, those kinds of traumas really, you know, stick with you and it really shaped the kind of person you become. Yeah. And so how did you begin studying this as like your, your kind of like specialty? as an academic? Um, it's always been something really close to me and very personal to me. You know, um, after that fourth hair trauma of, you know, working at the amusement park and not being accepted in regards to the way that I was wearing my hair, I was just really curious to know, like, why is society so against Black beauty? Why is society, um, you know, have, has just this disdain for Black people and Black beauty. And so that's, you know, that's how I got started. You know, there was not, back then when I first started, there were not many scholars that were doing work about Black hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's become more popular nowadays, but um, there was just a handful of us that was doing that work. And I just wanted to learn more about me. I wanted to learn more about Black culture. And there was no other topic that was going to be as close to me as something like that. So. I also think that like as cultural historians, a lot of our personal passions end up getting played out into what it is that we actually, what direction we take as cultural historians, because we want to figure stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Underwood, you are an art historian. Can you tell us about when you and Dr. Ellington first met and began working together and perhaps a little bit about the concept behind the exhibition? Sure. So I began working at Kent State about four years ago. Uh, I have a career studying specifically African and post-colonial art, the way that artists have helped shape national identities in the post-colony, the way that in the museum world or the curatorial world, how Africa gets represented or, of course, misrepresented. So when I got up and introduced myself at the uh, you know, orientation for new faculty, I talked about some of my museum experiences and curatorial projects, and Dr. Ellington dashed over <laughs> immediately after. Match made in heaven. And That's said, right. you know, she said, I've had this idea for years. Would this be of any interest to you? And, you know, this is like day one of work. I was like, yep, let's schedule <laughs> something for next week. Uh-huh. So that's it. So we've worked on this for about four years. And um, the concept behind the exhibition is that there is not one way to tell the story of Black mm-hmm. hair, that it is mm-hmm. so multifaceted and, and complicated and long, as we'll talk about, you know, kind of, it spans millennia, yeah. it spans any particular geography, cultural history. And so we just wanted to offer a few different lenses through not only the art world, kind of a white cube gallery look at Black hair through art, but also the material and cultural history which really comes out of Dr. Ellingdon's research and expertise. So this is one of the first exhibitions that's blended kind of high and low, the fine art and the vernacular all together. And it's, I mean, we've got over 200 objects spanning millennia. So it's it's a lot to chew on, um, but we're just offering a few perspectives on, on this history. 
And, and I think we'll get into this later, but that's one of the things that I really loved about the show, that it is like this whole entire world of types of objects. And as you've noted, this is an enormous topic with hundreds of years of history behind it. Um, so I think maybe if we could first talk about the significance of hair in Africa before European colonization in the 15th century. And, you know, to say here in Africa, and we've talked about this on show on the show before, that just say in Africa feels very reductive because it's an entire continent. <laughs> you know, now Africa is 50 plus countries, but the, the quote unquote map of the African continent looked very different 400 years ago. So I'm hoping maybe one of you could tell us a little bit about how pan-African society was structured before European colonization. Yeah, um, Africa, cradle of humanity. It's been around a while. You should, you should probably know a little something because I promise you, you have a connection to it. Yeah, okay? we all Might have to go back a, a few generations, but you're connected. So um, what's really complex about Africa is the way that it's broken down into so many ethnic groups. And that can be an ethnic group tied together by language, by culture, by genetics. And then as we know, over the course of human history, no identity is ever kind of this set fixed thing. There's always people, you know, interconnecting or society collapses or it's absorbed by another. So Africa has a very complex history of hundreds of ethnic groups and languages. Then there are different kingdoms that rise and fall. Sometimes they pull together different ethnic groups or it might even center around one. Then there are still cross-cultural kind of contacts. I mean, you can think of Egypt as part of Africa that's had interactions between the Middle East and the Mediterranean all in the pre-modern era, much less once we get to, like you say, maybe the 15th century and there's some of the first contact with Europe. So, you know, society is structured in a constant flux. Um, identities coming together and, and pushing off of each other. Neighbors sharing traditions, some coming up with traditions so that they specifically are distinguished from their neighbor. Mm-hmm. So all that to say is we can't even talk about hair in Africa as a monolith, right? Right. right. In some society it'll look this way, and it, you know, and and we can we can break that down more. Hair was a way to identify, um, you know, who you were in society. So whether you were with a particular tribe or within that tribe, um, whether you were a warrior or maybe a, a mother or a young girl or say someone who was mourning, your hair um, represented, you know, who you were at that particular time in the society. And so royalties wore their hair in a certain way. You know, people who were warriors, they wore their hair in a certain way. So it not only, you know, was it a, a means of, you know, self-care, but it was also definitely a means of identifying, you know, who you were and who you belonged to. Right, right. I love this so much. I mean, like, can we just like bring a little bit of this back? Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's a really lovely idea. So one of the things that you talk about in the book um, is the significance of combs to many African peoples. Would one of you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, the the comb is a really interesting object historically because it has both been functional and aesthetic. Right, decorative. We have combs, yes, but the exhibition also has a huge selection of pins And kind of in our mindset, those might even seem like distinct things. But for example, the ivory pins from the Mengbetu people, you're actually using the pin to draw designs in the hair as you weave it 
And then once the design's done, then you put the pin in as a, as, as a decorative element. So they kind of, kind of flux back and forth in terms of, yes, hair care or the structuring of that particular style. But they also, depending on which culture we're in, we are also thinking about African peoples in the diaspora. So for example, in Suriname, you know, the Afro-diasporic population, there, you have things like the traditions of when you get engaged to uh, your, your potential spouse, you give a comb as, as, that, as that gift. So, the, I mean, again, it's so hard to think monolithically. I, I just like to throw out these really specific examples because that's the way we combat any kind of monolithic history is just by drilling down into, well, here it looked like this. And in this century, it did this. Right. Presenting the facts. <laughs> and, and many of the combs um, in the exhibition I noted were from the collection of Dr. Willie Morrow. Who was Dr. Morrow? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about his book, 400 Years Without a Comb? Yeah, uh, Dr. Morrow is a legend in the Black hair industry. Um, He started out his career as a barber in the 1950s. He went into the Navy and began to teach uh, many of the men there how to cut hair. He had uh, cut the hair of several famous people as well as civil rights leaders. Uh, He even was one of the people who carved the first Afro pick that we know of today and used some of the um, proceeds from the sales of that particular pick to help fund certain elements of the civil rights movement. He is, yes, the author of 400 Years Without a Comb. And, you know, it's interesting. That book was published in 1973. And whenever I think of 400 Years Without a Comb, I also relate it to the movie Roots. Mm -hmm. Roots was the very first visual depiction of what the slave era was like for Black people. And Dr. Willie Morrow's book was the first real glimpse of the history and struggle of Black hair. So a lot of other scholars that came up, you know, behind um, him, myself included, you know, used uh, his book as a a reference, you know, for our work. He also is a collector. Um, He has one of the largest collections of Black hair artifacts in the nation. And Dr. Joseph um, and I were blessed to go to San Diego. We got a chance to meet him. And we have more than 70 pieces um, from his collection in our show, stemming from things like um, combs, like we talked about, other styling tools, such as like hair curlers and hair blow dryers, photographs that he had, magazines, um, and even diplomas from Annie Malone's um, Portal College, which is so, that's like the coolest thing ever to be able to see something like that up close, you know? So he he is a true legend. Yeah. I mean, as a curator, I love those moments when you get that ephemera, when you can look at it and it like, it tugs on your heartstrings. Like it really does. Like, it's like, this person did this. It's so great. Dr. Morrow's book title introduces the topic of slavery. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk about how the white majority in places where enslaved persons were being brought and traded. How did the white majority view black hair during these, well, really centuries? Yeah, well, black bodies were definitely dehumanized um, for the purposes of justifying um, why it was acceptable to treat Black people in such a harmful way. 
scientists such as Francois Bonnier even did research, quote unquote research, about the differences in Black bodies and how Black bodies were more related to animal bodies than human bodies. Um, it's what they call biological racism. So it was basically like the start of where racism, you know, how it began. And black hair, you know, was of course a part of that because black people are the only ones on the planet who have tightly coiled hair, like such as we do. And our hair was referred to as wool instead of actually being hair. You know, again, to put us closer <laughs> to animals than, than being a part of the human race. So, yeah. And so you also um, write about the cultural significance of hairstyles and grooming practices to enslaved individuals. So I'm curious a little bit more about like what that looks like culturally at the time, because people from many, many different countries and many different peoples and many different tribes were all kind of like being put together. They might not even be speaking the same languages as each other, depending on where they ended up. So, so how did hair like become like a, a self-care practice and, and how did that play out? It didn't really even start for quite some time. Slave owners didn't really allow their property, their slaves, um, time for personal hygiene until the act of um, 1807, which prohibited the importation of slaves. Um, white masters then began to see the value in allowing their slaves to have a day of rest in which they chose to have that day on Sunday. So slaves began to um, have a practice of going to church. They also used uh, Sundays as a day to mend, you know, clothing that may have been, you know, needed to be mended. They used that time to, to do their hair for, you know, for that week. And so, you know, that particular time was, um, is, was became something that was very sacred to Black people. And unfortunately, you know, even though they were allowed that time you know, to be able to take care of their hair, they still weren't given the necessary tools to be able to do so. And so they were using things such as axle grease and ground corn, you know, to take care of their hair, anything that they could find, like, you know, carding combs that they used on sheep's wool, you know, they use those kinds of things to, to take care of their hair. And there's even tales of, you know, in, in slave narratives of jealous wives of the master requiring that enslaved mistresses um, shave their heads in order to try to make them less attractive to their white slave masters who were forcing themselves on their slaves. So some Black women, depending on where they were, they had to cut all their hair off, you know, um, especially if they were subjected to, um, you know, to forced copulation, you know, with their master. Um, there's even something called the Tijan Law. That was in 1786. It was enforced in Louisiana, and that particular law is really interesting. And it just shows the, I, the, you know what? I actually love that law because it shows the ingenuity and the like, just the amazing creativity of Black people. And so that law was actually put into place so that a Black female, whether she was enslaved or freed, it was a, a means of trying to keep Black people in their place, Black women particularly in their place. They were forced to wear a head wrap, which was a signifier that they were enslaved 
or that they were, you know, outside of the white race. And especially, it became especially important because in Louisiana, a lot of the Black people there were um, were Afro-Creole. And a lot of the um, Creole people are um, descendants of French who came there to, you know, colonize. And so a lot of those, those Black women, they were Black, but their skin color was very, very light. And so they needed to have a way to be able to differentiate who was Black and who was not Black, you know, by making these women wear this, these headscarves. But it actually was, it was counterintuitive because Black women took these headscarves and actually started making all these amazing they designs. Did it. They did it. You know, right. <laughs> they made all these wonderful designs, which did not make them less attractive, but made them more attractive, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a journey and we are still on the journey. It's been neat because some of the, even the objects that we have in the exhibition, for example, from Dr. Morrow's collection, we have from Antebellum U.S. corn grinder, which is, Mm -hmm. as Tamika mentioned, you know, even once there became space for the enslaved people to care for themselves, it still was very rudimentary or, Mm -hmm. or very, um, which we can either view as a negative thing or like Tamika's positioning, it's actually a sign of ingenuity to take the, the corn grounds comb them through your hair to remove the grease. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting just the way the exhibition set up that we have an artifact from that time reacting to reflecting alongside contemporary Black yes. artists who are thinking about that time period. So there's even kind of a collapsing of time periods just by nature of using the material artifacts and contemporary art. Yeah, I love it when exhibitions do that, when they like juxtapose objects together in a physical space so they can like have a dialogue between each other. That was Dr. Joseph, uh, just his ingenious way of thinking when it came to the art world. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to have been able to have him as a partner. So to be able to help tell the story, you know? Yeah, and it's such an amazing story. I'm hoping we can like fast forward in time just a little bit. And you guys write in your exhibition catalog that after the abolition of slavery, and I'm quoting you, assimilation and acculturation became necessary evils for survival. So Dr. Ellington, you have coined this term texturism as it relates to colorism. And I'm hoping maybe that you could tell our listeners who might not be familiar with these concepts a little bit about both and how they're interrelated. Uh, Alice Walker, the author, um, most of you guys probably know her by the book Color Purple. Um, And so she actually was the the one who coined the term colorism. And colorism basically means the preferential treatment of light-skinned Black people. So according to the colorism concept, you know, lighter-skinned Black people are considered more beautiful, more educated, less threatening than people who are dark skin. And, and texturism is a sister term to that in that just as you know, colorism, someone who is a lighter skin tone is someone who is more um, acceptable and more um, attractive to uh, the white society. Somebody in the black culture who may have sh- a straighter textured hair is also considered more attractive and more acceptable, less threatening than another black person who may have kinky hair. Yeah. And, and and that just introduces this whole history of the straightening of black hair. Could you guys tell us a little bit about 
some of the implements and the processes that have been used historically, because as you've said, a lot of these objects are actually included in your exhibition. Yeah. You know, I think about when I was a little girl, you know, and my mom used to straighten my hair. Um, the kitchen became a beauty salon in a lot of, in a lot of houses. Yeah. But it, it started, you know, straightening the hair started before the ending of slavery and the women and men would take axle grease, put the axle grease in their hair, and then they would lay their heads on an ironing board and they would take a clothing iron and iron their hair straight. That was kind of like the first techniques that was used. And those, those clothing irons were not even electric back then. They were the ones that you set on the, in the fire and you took that clothing iron out of the fire and then used that on the hair to straighten out the hair. Later on, in the early 1900s, Black women got access to straightening combs and Marcel curling irons, which were both invented in France. These tools became popular because of people such as Madame C.J. Walker and Annie Turbo Malone. And again, straightening the hair was a means of survival because if you didn't straighten your hair or if you didn't purchase bleaching creams and try to lighten your skin, you were not seen as someone who was employable. And so it was, it was a means of survival. And, you know, Madam CJ Walker and, um, you know, Annie Turbo Malone and other women who were, you know, working in the hair industry, their purpose was to try to give people a means of being employable. Of course, not all black people felt the same way. And like people like such as um, Marcus Garvey, you know, had issues with the fact that Black people were straightening their hair, you know. So, yeah, that's kind of where it started. Um, Garrett Morgan, he was the one who was the first inventor of a chemical that was used to start the hair straightening. You still had to have a straightening comb, but it was like a, a chemical that helped the straightening last a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, lie relaxers or straighteners were invented in like the, like the 50s. Jose Calva, I believe, was like the first inventor of the lye relaxer that Black women could use in their hair to, to permanently straighten their hair. Um, really, and it's funny, you know, saying permanently straighten, when you think about it, it really is not permanent, you know, because of course your hair is going to grow from the roots and it's not going to look the same as that straightened hair on the ends, right? So, but yeah, um, hair straightening is still very prevalent. Um, most Black women still do straighten their hair. Only about 40% of Black women nowadays wear their hair in its natural state. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that um, you, you touch on the fact, you say in the book that, or the exhibition catalog, that with the rise of the civil rights movement in the United States, that's when large numbers of Black people stopped straightening their hair. So I'm interested in hearing from you both about the politics of black hair around this time. And, and and our regular listeners will know that this is like this, this theme that I go off on all the time on the show about how fashion and style is inherently connected to how we fashion ourselves. And it, we've talked about it on so many episodes. So can you tell us a little bit about how the natural hair movement connected to the civil rights movement? And also too, like, where is the natural hair movement today? Because I think a lot of these things are still very much in play at the moment. Yeah, uh, the civil rights movement, you know, was the initiator, the agitator of the Black is Beautiful movement, because that's what came first. The, the Black Panther uh, movement or Black Power movement 
the Black is Beautiful movement was also, you know, birthed out of the civil rights movement. And really what it was, was it was just a way of Black people saying, you know what, I am happy about who I am. I don't feel like I have to assimilate and straighten my hair just because you said, just because society said that I have to do it. And so, you know, Black hair, because of that, and because of just the long history in it all, you know, Black hair was politicized. Uh, It was not ever meant to be politicized, but because of colonization, because of discrimination, you know, it became politicized and it, it became a way for Black people to say, you know what? I'm, I'm happy being me. I'm happy being exactly who I am. And it has gone away. So in the 1960s, during the civil rights movement, when Black people started wearing what they call the natural, they started wearing the natural. As the civil rights movement died down in, say, like the late 1970s, early 1980s, Black people went back to straightening their hair, but it was in a different way. So they were straightening their hair with the jerry curl. And then after that, went down uh, in the late 1990s, that's when what we hear now as uh, is called the natural hair movement, that's when that actually started. So the natural hair movement was like the beginning of like the 2000s mm-hmm. is when that really kind of came into play. And the Black is Beautiful movement was a combination of men and women. The natural hair movement, for the most part, is pretty much mostly women. And it was really important for women to be able to show love for themselves, to show self-acceptance for themselves. And social media had a lot to do with that. So once the internet, you know, became popular, um, Black people started putting a lot of information on the websites that they were creating. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Black people were getting information about their hair. And so the natural hair movement is not just about a beauty movement, but it's also an educational movement. So it's the first time that Black people had a plethora of information about how to take care of their hair because of the fact that most Black women wore their hair straight for so long, they didn't even know what their hair texture was like, you know? And so once they did go natural, they needed some help. And the the natural hair movement was kind of like that sister that you didn't have or that friend that you didn't have to kind of help you, you know, figure out how to do your hair. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's still in play today. And it's it's you know, it's continuing on and growing, um, you know, because of social media. Yeah, I, I just love that so much. And what's neat is that we kind of have art objects that speak to all of these different moments. Mm-hmm. They might not necessarily be from that time. I mean, we do have some. We have, you know, Angela Davis's FBI Most Wanted poster, which is one of the kind of first really visual markers of the Afro as a a sign of resistance or like Mm -hmm. anti-establishment. But then we also have artists reflecting later. You know, we have April Bay, her Creamy Crisp piece, which is thinking about the role of social media and YouTube and the fact that Black women created a a kind of network and safe space for sharing these practices. But even then how she's kind of critiquing Chris Rock's kind of famous documentary about it. So, and then we have Glenford Nunez, who's one of these incredible photographers who has a natural hair, a kind of whole portfolio and book. So all these moments are marked by pieces in the show and we're trying to balance them between the material artifact and the, the artist expression. And I'm so glad that you brought up some of the objects that are in the exhibition. You've structured the exhibition into three thematic sections. 
Can you share with us what these three sections are and a little bit about the decision-making process behind like how you organize the show's content? Because this is, as we've already said, centuries and centuries and centuries and like so like multivalent in terms of like meanings. So it was a really interesting collaboration, just even given our own backgrounds and what we brought to it. I focus more on the art world and I know that the artists and then Tamika has the, the know-how, the history, the material, all the every invention and curling cream and all these things. And we really wanted to synthesize those stories in a meaningful way. So we came together with a list of objects and artworks that were kind of dream pieces and just tried to distill that down into three different lenses. There's, of course, overlap between these categories, but we ended up breaking it down into community and memory, hair politics, and black joy. Community and memory is mostly thinking about the fact that, uh, like Tamika said, you don't really do your hair by yourself. It, it always involves a second set of hands. And so whether that's a family connection or through a barbershop or a salon, and it becomes a hub for the community, it's also part of memory. There's all this nostalgia around it, or even hair traumas, you know, <laughs> stories of having your hair pulled. So the first section really thinks about the communal and almost nostalgic aspect of it. The second category is hair politics, which some days you're, you're styling your hair in a certain way because you're making a statement. And some days you're just trying to go to school and you get kicked out of school because your hair looks a certain way. And then you become the center of politics totally by existing. So hair politics thinks about a long history of this, mm -hmm. whether it's been politicized as a minority population within, within a larger mainstream society, or even politics when Black is the majority, you know, and, and that can be in Africa, like Tamika was talking about with you style your hair a certain way to signify social status, so, or, or, or royalty. The third category is Black joy, because there is just incredible aesthetics around Black hair. It has qualities that are sculptural, that um, are textured in ways that other hair isn't, and so there are so many artists and um, fashion designers and people who are using either hair as a material mm -hmm. in a joyful way or, you know, styling the hair in such a way that just says, I, 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 am, I am in my body and I'm unapologetically expressing that. Yeah. And again, one of the things that I love so much is this juxtaposition of objects, ephemera, and contemporary art that are that are all in this show. I know that because the show has happened during COVID, there were a couple of really special objects that the loans that you guys had arranged, which is no feat, by the way, in terms of like curating an exhibition, like organizing those loans is literally sometimes takes years. So you do include them in the exhibition catalog. So I'm, I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit about these two particular pieces that don't actually appear in the show, but you, they are in the catalog because this really goes back to that idea that this narrative has been happening not only for centuries, but millennia. Ultimately, COVID happened. Yeah. And, and, and what's really, you know, if you're putting together an exhibition and you have some pieces that end up not being in the show, there's no reason you would normally include them in the catalog. We thought that was an important step, though, because one, it just acknowledges, like you said, years of preparation and collaboration. We were working with great partners at the Met Museum and the Brooklyn Museum to borrow some really incredible Egyptian pieces 
Um, you know, one of them was a bundle of locks of hair from a tomb in case you needed some extensions in the afterlife. You know, like just incredible. You're ready about, to go. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so of the, I think we had about nine or 10 pieces we were going to borrow from New York. And with kind of curating through COVID and what was going to be possible and museums were still on lockdown and, you know, they're loaning to hundreds of exhibitions around the world and they're trying to figure out what they can do. We just decided to move forward without those pieces, but we thought it was still important for one, the audience to see a couple more of the Egyptian pieces. We have some incredible ones from the Cleveland Museum of Art that will be there. Um, But also just for future generations of curators. It's almost, it's like this interesting side note in practice to think about what was it like during that pandemic? I, I think that'll be a study someday is like curating during a pandemic. Like what were the different methodologies people used? So all that to say that the two pieces that are in the catalog, we thought were just stunning. Um, One is of a man and it shows these, it's almost like short locks or short dreads. And it's an Egyptian piece, possibly from Nubia. So the Southern part of Egypt. And it just acknowledges the fact that these hair textures were prevalent, used, um, practiced and shared across a region. It also emphasizes the shocking fact that Egypt is part of Africa. <laughs> that is the African continent. Um, the other really neat piece that we had from the Met was two women and one braiding the other's hair. And it goes back to that communal aspect, the fact that there's always that collaborative nature in coming up with these hairstyles. And then the fact that they then signal to society a shared meaning. Yeah. I mean, and there's like, they literally are embodying love between friends and family. And I, I, I love that so much. I have a few favorite objects in the exhibition, which maybe I'll share with you in a second. But do the two of you have some favorite pieces that you'd like to talk about that we haven't already touched on? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to choose, I'm telling you, because, I mean, we love so many of them, and they all have different meanings to us for different reasons. You know, for me, one of the ones that was the probably, you know, nearest and dearest to my heart is a piece that's called um, All That Glitters by an artist, Annie Lee. And Annie Lee is not what you would consider a, um, you know, contemporary artist. Um, high-end contemporary artists. And so it took me a little bit of convincing Joseph to allow for that piece to be in the show because Annie Lee um, is a huge cultural icon in that no matter what salon you went to, no matter what black hair salon you went to, you would always see one of Annie Lee's prints in that salon. And so it was important for me to be able to you know, bring in that culture. You know, I'm telling you, like any Black person, once they go into that space and they see the annually, they're going to be like, okay, I remember that from when I was a child, you know, going to hair salons and seeing that piece. Another one of my favorites is a piece called Femme Totem Blue by an artist, um, Masa Zandros. That piece is amazing and it's in our Black Joy category. And one of the reasons why it's my favorite is because it really depicts hair as a spiritual part of who you are. And black hair, because there's been so much struggle, you know, throughout our lives with it, um, 
just the idea that it can also be a part of our spiritual being is another means of saying, you know what, I'm happy to, to be who I am. I'm, I'm excited about who I am. I love who I am. And I'm willing to, you know, share that with spirit and share that with the universe, you know? And so it, that's one of, I mean, every time I think about it, it just kind of gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Well, and I think um, one of the um, writers who contributed a chapter to your catalog talks about that at the very beginning of, of the catalog about how um, many African peoples, because your hair is like the, like the, the closest space to the sky, that it became this spiritual element because it's closer to a multitude of higher powers. Yeah, it covers your crown chakra. So it covers, like, it's the closest thing to the crown chakra. And then the crown chakra, of course, is the closest thing to spirit. And it's neat, yeah, because certain societies, I'm thinking of maybe like the Yoruba peoples, the uh, or the, from the kingdom of Benin, that your soul was located in your head. Like we might point to our chest cavity, like that's our heart, our soul. They would point to the head as the site of that really essence of who you are, but also like the essence of who you are both physically, but also kind of spiritually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Underwood, do you have any favorite objects? Oh gosh. Yeah. Like Tamika, it's hard to pick a favorite kid, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they are your kids at this point. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I think a couple that I would call out. Um, one is a piece by Mary Sabande. She's a contemporary artist from South Africa. And it's one of the centerpieces of the exhibition, just by virtue of its scale. She takes a life-size cast of a Black woman's body and then dresses it in blue, which in South Africa is the traditional color of a domestic worker. And her mom was, her grandma was, and then her great-grandma, I, I believe, was enslaved. So, you know, there's a, there's a history of that. And so she puts her character named Sophie, it's like an alter ego, in blue, but then she adjusts the garment from like a maid's apron to these massive Victorian ball gowns. Um, this one is actually on a 16-foot diameter platform of just blue fabric. And what's really neat about this iteration of her Sophie character is that she's in dialogue with Madam C.J. Walker. So you can see her figure like weaving with hair extensions, a portrait of Madam C.J. Walker on the wall. And I just love this because there are actually so many relationships between Africa and the Americas. Some are negative, like the transatlantic slave trade. Some of them are really positive. I'm thinking of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and how they were really inspired by the civil rights movement in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and even shared some similar um, tactics in, in you know, fighting for liberation. So here, seeing a South African woman, uh, alter ego, kind of interacting with the first African-American millionaire in the U.S. and thinking about women's roles and, and how they can shape space and society for themselves, I just think is a really powerful metaphor for our exhibition with all of this kind of cross-cultural trans-historical <laughs> themes around Black hair. I, I love Mary's work so much. I've been a fan of hers for quite some time. So, One of my favorite pieces in the exhibition catalog is Yane Gabon's Cottonhead piece. Dr. Underwood, would you describe it for our listeners? And then I, wa- <laughs> and then I, will, I will say what I found so like moving and really powerful about this piece. Sure. Um, so the, it's, it's a slightly larger than life-size head. 
and uh, it's ceramic. So it's got that kind of dense quality. The, the, it's almost mask-like in the way that it has smoothed out facial features to, to being just a little bit more stylized. And then there are actual stalks and, and um, bits of cotton that crown that figure's head. Yeah. And, and and like when I saw this in the catalog, it it's one of those pieces that like it packs a punch, right? It's aesthetically really, really beautiful. But like when you kind of like escape that moment of like loving something because of because it is pleasing to you aesthetically and like really like then like the actual emotion or meaning of it like hits you. I, I, that was one of the, my favorite pieces uh, that was included in the exhibition catalog because it does, it, it functions on both of those levels really well to me. What was the other favorite one? Oh, well, um, one of my other favorite ones is of course the Gordon Parks photo of, I don't even know how many women are in this photo. Um, and it was taken in Chicago and they're all Muslim women and they're wearing, everybody has their hair covered by their white veils. And it's just, it's visually striking. Um, we've already done an episode on him um, and his, particularly his work in fashion because, you know, he did a lot of work in fashion among the bajillion other things that he was a genius at. But yeah, that one, that one was really striking for me as well. And you contributed an essay, Joseph, specifically on photography related to this. Yeah, it was something we were thinking through because the, you know, the topic is so massive across time. And so in that essay, I kind of even noted, it's one thing if we approach the exhibition through just images that uh, where the artist was, you know, thinking about black hair, but then there's another billion images where black hair's in a picture or in a photograph. And it still might tell a story, even if it's totally ancillary to what the photographer uh, was trying to show. So I, I thought through the work of uh, a few different um, photographers or photo-based artists and how they've used the camera or subverted it because it's it's been, you know, but it, yeah, it's been an incredible tool for demonstrating Black joy, but it's also been a really violent tool for stripping people of their humanity and individuality and, and, and you know, propagating really problematic images. So I just thought about artists like Lena Iris Victor or Ibrahima Cham or Amber Ford, who's, you know, a fantastic Cleveland-based artist, and just how they've used the camera to fight back against that history. I just want to say this was an entire treat of an exhibition catalog. Of course, the exhibition is not quite open yet, right? Opens in September, and it'll be up through summer 2022. Yeah, September, September 9th is our opening. Excellent. Well, I hope that we can all have a chance to meet in person. And I want to come see the show. I will get on a plane. I will be there. Our regular listeners might remember that I used to be an art gallerist for about 10 years. So, uh, you know, it it makes me so happy when I see an exhibition that has not only something important to say, but the objects actually back it up, back up that thesis and take us on a journey. And I spent so much time in the New York art world that I will say that's a lot of times it's the exception, not the rule when you have an exhibition that really, really works. So, um, you know, thank you so much, you know, for this magical kind of conversation that you have created. We are, thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're so happy to share this with everyone. And Tamika and I approach it even from a different topic and, of course, different personal backgrounds. We really are hoping that the show will resonate, whether you see yourself on the wall or you see your neighbor on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, there's definitely a takeaway for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, our biggest goal with the show was to create a better understanding, a better human understanding. I personally feel, you know, that we can't get rid of discrimination and discriminatory um, actions and behaviors until we have a community of people who have a better understanding of each other. And so, you know, this exhibition being at uh, Kent State University, which is a predominantly white institution, and most of the people that are going to probably see the show are white people. And so it was very important for me to bring the show there because, you know, honestly, you know, if we would have um, had it at, say, a um, all-Black institution, it just wouldn't hit the same. You know, it wouldn't have the same impact because, of course, Black people want to know about their history, but it's important that everybody know, you know, that everybody get a chance to, to have a better understanding of Black people and Black beauty. Thank you so much to both of you for being here today and sharing with our listeners your literal years of work that went into the show. We really appreciate it. This is a fun conversation. Thanks so much, April. Thank you, April. Dr. Ellington, Dr. Underwood, thank you so much for sharing your exhibition with us all in advance of its opening this coming fall. Put this one on the book stress listeners if you happen to be in Ohio in 2021 and 2022 because the show will run for nearly a year. It runs until August of 2022. April, as you know, the show was actually slated to open in September of 2020, but was pushed back a year, as have many museum shows been due to COVID. However, the exhibition catalog Textures, the History and Art of Black Hair is out now well in advance of the physical show actually opening. And I cannot recommend the catalog enough. It is fascinating. And it's actually from this exhibition catalog that I first learned of Dr. William Morrow, who was another pioneer in the Black hair care industry starting in the late 1950s. And I'm sure many of our listeners are already familiar with the story of Madam C.J. Walker, um, who we have mentioned on the show before. And she preceded him in the Black hair care industry as an innovator. But Dr. Morrow's story is equally fascinating. He was a barber to many influential Black Panthers. He invented the famous Afro pick featuring a closed fist. He contracted with the U.S. Defense Department and traveled the world training military barbers how to care for Black hair. And dress listeners, stay tuned because... I think that Dr. Morrow deserves his own episode. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) And he should be 80 this year. And his daughter actually wrote a really nice profile on him last year for the San Diego Union Tribune. So if anyone who knows me knows what this means, it means April's about to do some sleuthing online to reach out to them both because I would really, really love to see if Dr. Morrow would join us on Dress to share his story. That would be amazing. We love hearing from fashion history makers on Dress. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider what your hair says about you next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our next episode of Dressed. And we love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to write to us with an episode suggestion or even questions, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Or of course, you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is of course where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday.
Dress, The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.